Thanks for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com. I'm fortunate to have some sponsors supporting the show whose products I genuinely love and recommend. I'll start with a word on those so the rest of the episode will have no interruptions. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura Ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura Ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. This episode is brought to you by Levels. Levels uses continuous glucose monitoring to track your blood sugar in real time. It allows me to see the impact that everything I do has on my metabolic health so that I can optimize my diet and exercise accordingly. Wearing the Levels patch, I feel like I'm living in the future. There's this moment when you raise your phone to the back of your arm, it vibrates and shows your glucose level right on the screen. It's this instantaneous look inside yourself, an in-the-moment snapshot of what's going on inside your body. And while it's only showing one simple measurement for now, it's enough for me to see the future. And that's exciting. It's exciting because I believe that we can live meaningfully longer and healthier lives than we do today. And I believe technologies like Levels will help us to get there. Levels is currently running an exclusive beta program with a wait list of over 100,000 people. But you can skip the line and join Levels today by using my link in the show notes. Levels.link slash Jake. Again, that's levels.link slash Jake. Okay, let's get into it. Thank you, Ilya, for taking the time and joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Uh, you are the co-founder of Near Protocol, uh, which is a fully sharded proof-of-stake blockchain. Basically means it's high speed, low transaction fees, climate neutral, et cetera, et cetera. Um, pretty novel take on how to build a layer one blockchain. I think you guys got started around 2018 in the midst of the bear market. Um, and basically saw all the existing layer one blockchains and some of this the stuff that was coming in the future through white papers and whatnot, and thought you had a uh, you know a better way to do things. So went ahead and, and built Near Protocol. And uh, fast forward a few years later, this is one of the more popular and exciting uh, layer one blockchains in existence, and uh, tons of users and high market cap and all the like, lots of funding. So uh, very excited to have you on today to, to talk about it and talk about your story a little bit. And I think that's the best place to start uh, for those who don't know you is your story. Um, so, you know, the earlier you're willing to start, the better. And I'd uh, love to hear about sort of how you got to where you are today and, and some of the decisions you made along the way. For sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I would love to share how we got here and hopefully where we're we going. I think kind of the precipice of the story is uh, I'm originally from Ukraine. I've been coding or kind of trying to build something since I was 10. Um, 
And I would say initially I was mostly excited about games and video games because it felt like it's uh, the easiest way to create worlds. And that, that always excites me. I actually wrote some fiction as well uh, when I was kind of my teenager and early 20s. And so like it all, it, all, it always felt like, like a very powerful way to you know turn your thought into the into the reality. And I think that you know in many ways, kind of I think of computers and of technology in general as you know as Steve Jobs says, you know bicycle for the mind, right? So this tool that allows us to continuously expand and, and do greater things. Um, through that times, I've um, kind of started to also uh, get interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence um, and uh, went to university actually because I was excited to study more uh, in that direction. At the same time, living in Ukraine from somewhat, you know, very uh, kind of uh, not, not so well off family, let's just say, um, started looking for a job in, in the first year of college, uh, university, ended up finding a job in, um, in, in a Ukrainian office of a machine learning company from San Diego. And so that was really exciting because it kind of combined both, you know, being able to get paid for things that were really interesting to me. And so by kind of by the time I finished university, I was pretty much already had, you know, six years of experience uh, in machine learning kind of across lots of different projects. Um, every, and like that company was doing both building kind of core technology around decision trees, as well as doing a lot of consulting and kind of projects, uh, which was really cool. In parallel, uh, both in, in high school and university, I was doing the competitive programming, which for people who are not familiar is pretty much a, a kind of competition alternative to other other forms of sports, but where you sit in front of a computer and try to solve problems as fast as possible, uh, writing software that then gets tested automatically and, and you get in score. Uh, and it's both like personal and team and it in a way trains you to both write really kind of correct code because you need to actually uh, like pass all the tests, which are usually testing all kinds of uh, exceptional cases, as well as to really apply all of these algorithms and uh, kind of computer science that, that you're studying. And so I think that was really good experience as well as, you know, us forwarding how I met my co-founder. And so the kind of, the, you know, balancing that for a bit and then kind of went to work full time, like full time for the machine learning company, moved to San Diego uh, and worked there. That was a really cool experience because obviously coming from Ukraine, you know, adjusting the world from uh, living in, you know, what Ukraine was, I guess, uh, 10 years ago to to come into US was a very interesting experience. But at the same time, the company was pretty small and, and it's not, it wasn't growing per se. It was really um, kind of in, in a stable state. And so I was, I was looking for some kind of challenge and opportunity 
And so I started looking at uh, Bay Area both as a way to kind of find a challenge, but also I saw the deep learning coming. I saw a lot of kind of exciting new things coming out of that. That was 2012, 2013, uh, which was not like deep learning was not the same decision trees, what everybody used. You know, if you look at Google ads, that all of the kind of machine learning that was happening back then, it was all decision trees. And I really thought that kind of neural networks will be the future. And so uh, I ended up joining Google Research uh, to really work on that. And for, for me, the part that's always exciting and uh, kind of I thought is the closest to the kind of, you know, working directly on, on human intelligence level AI is knowledge. Like anything that you can do to manage, extract, and uh, kind of answer from knowledge is a way to truly test the intelligence of machines. Like that's why, although a lot of people work in image, you know, generation and image recognition and image perception, like I always say, you know, there is, I think, you know, millions of species that have vision and there's only one that actually can like talk and uh, answer questions. And so, uh, so I was really excited to work on that. I had like at the end, we were we were a team that worked across natural language translation, question answering, knowledge extraction, kind of lots of different things at Google. And so that also led to one of the at this point kind of probably most influential papers uh, of the past five years uh, called "Attention is All You Need," which is what a lot of the current natural language and image. Uh, understanding and, and a lot of other uh, kind of deep learning models are based on. That was really cool. That was kind of interesting experience. At the same time, Google has a, a set of, I would say, interesting design choices uh, of organization, right? That were really, I would say, limiting. And uh, kind of it makes sense like at a company of that size, but you know if you're trying to move fast and and try to achieve interesting things, that is uh, something that's kind of hard to overcome. And so I left, I joined forces with Alex, and so we met Alex through. So he was also a competitive programmer, way better than me. He has a gold medal at the world level, and only competed at the, at the Ukrainian level. And we've uh, kind of teamed up uh, to work on Near AI. And so Near AI was the idea to take on kind of machine translation approach as well as some other techniques and to generate programs from natural language cues. So think of it like you just say what you want and it will just write code for you. Which, I, I mean, we were a bit early uh, and, and had way less compute that was needed to actually get this going. Um, but it was also a really interesting experience of like trying to build a startup, you know, raising first funds, figuring out how to actually test your hypothesis without even building anything. Like we've done a bunch of kind of experiments where we would put the like just a simple prompt in front of users and ask them to just kind of describe what they want and see if we can kind of as a human even uh, uh, fulfill those prompts. 
one of the cool things we ended up building was a crowdsourcing system where we had lots of people around the world that were trying to, or like do, doing tasks for us. And mostly around coding, around kind of describing code, writing code, figuring out kind of just how to solve some problems. Uh, and that was all feeding the data, training data we needed for our models. Now, the problem with that was that these people were around the world, right? We did not like localize and say, hey, only this, like, you know, this country or whatever. And so we needed to pay them for this work into countries like China, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, kind of around the world, which ended up being really complicated because the kind of all, a lot of countries have different kind of restrictions. You have, you know, PayPal doesn't work in one place. Some people don't have bank accounts. Most of these people are students. Um, some of them didn't have into, like, a, a way to accept international currency like dollars into their country. And so it ended up being like a pretty big problem just like paying people small amounts of money around the world. And that's where the blockchain enters because, well, that, you know, that's literally a tagline for the blockchain, you know, global payment system for microtransactions. And so we started looking at kind of the world of blockchain. And this is somewhere around May 2018 kind of already, you know, hype happened and then started to kind of uh, lower down. Uh, and so we, we started looking more as like, okay, well, if we build this crowdsourcing system using blockchain, kind of how would we build it? What would we do? And so that was pretty interesting kind of exploration because we looked at a lot of the different uh, solutions that, that were available at that point and that uh, people worked on. As you mentioned in the beginning, did not find anything that would like, you know, as a developer, like, hey, okay, this is, this is the instrument that I'm going to use and I'm going to go and build my product, right? That, like, we did not find anything like that. It was all like, okay, well, this is a thing that maybe at some point will work or this thing that clearly doesn't work, right? I think like in my original blog post, I kind of dunked on a couple of blockchains, which already don't exist, uh, including some of them like were pretty easily corruptible. And so that was like really the origination of this. We're like, well, if we as developers and, and kind of you know product builders want to use blockchain and we cannot find a solution for ourselves, and, and you know, our background is in building kind of systems, including my co-founder built a sharded database before uh, that's used for uh, Fortune 500 companies. We're like, well, it seems like this is an opportunity to actually solve this problem for everyone and then go and build the products we want to build, right? And so we actually started bringing the original team with this idea that, hey, we want to build infrastructure and it's decentralized. So, you know, there, like it's not that you need to forever then run a company to maintain it. Although obviously there's still a lot, a lot more work always to be done. But the idea is that the original team would then go on and build kind of applications and, and various products on top of this. And so uh, so we went from kind of three people working on AI uh, in in beginning of August to nine people working on blockchain, uh, kind of like having, you know, seven engineers and two non-technical kind of business side. So, yeah, that, that was a pretty interesting transition, uh, obviously. Also, uh, going in knowing very little, I would say, about blockchains at the time, uh, being a little bit um, 
com- overconfident that we can actually do it pretty quickly. Uh, at the same time, we, we you know, realized that we need to learn. And so we started this um, kind of video podcast called Whiteboard Series, where we interviewed a lot of other blockchains. Uh, kind of, I think at this point, like almost 50 videos now. We're really trying to dig in how exactly they work and actually asking really tough questions and, you know, in some of them kind of breaking their approach. Uh, but that allowed not just us, but everyone to kind of understand deep, deeper, like what exactly is happening with this, uh, with this protocols, right, on the technical side versus kind of marketing. And for us, it allowed us to kind of also almost like survey the space in a way that we really well understand kind of the trade-offs that everybody's taking. Yeah, um, that's a that's a great story, and I appreciate you sharing it. Um, I want to drill in a little bit into this like early assessment that you made of um, you know the existing blockchain projects when you guys were building this uh, basically crowdsourced tasking system, and uh, you know trying to figure out how to pay people globally, and couldn't find a blockchain that you wanted to build on. I understand like around that time, um, I think you took a close look at like EOS and IOTA. And obviously Ethereum, I imagine you, you know, paid some attention to, um, and you mentioned that like, you might've been overconfident in, in how quickly you could build a new blockchain and, and sort of build the whole thing and have it be very successful. Um, obviously it's been, you know, very successful, I think by, by most standards in the, uh, first three or four years, first couple of years on mainnet now. Um, but do you think you, has your original assessment of like what existed and, what needs to exist changed or is the the primary thesis sort of consistent from, you know, May, 2018 or whatever it was. So it is actually pretty consistent. The kind of the core, the core thing we're looking for is something that would try to solve for, I mean, I call it simplicity, right? It's like, if you want to use this infrastructure, you should not need to understand the kind of all of the, design choices and specifics of the implementation of the system, right? Similarly, how when you use, you know, an Amazon cloud, you don't need to think about like how exactly they're laying out cables that connect computers and how exactly virtualization is working to move your EC2 instances between uh, physical servers. And so like I still, and, and at the same time, it needs to be able kind of, to scale with more demand, right? As more people come in, it should be able to increase its capacity uh, as infrastructure. And so I don't think still anyone else is actually looking at this in in this approach, right? I think people either trying to solve for a technical, for existing technical problems that kind of they've faced with the previous iterations, or they are saying like, okay, well, We'll let developers and users to figure out exactly where things are. Uh, we're just gonna give them kind of the you know the the building blocks, right? And so it's it's kind of always pushing the complexity on developers and users versus really trying to reduce it and remove it from the from them. And so kind of from this perspective, I think we like I mean a lot of people are thinking about it, but we're the only one who actually made a lot of design decisions. Kind of in and out of the protocol to to get to that state, and I'm I'm not saying like it's you know fully there yet, but that's always been the the goal. 
Right. So and when I think about near, um, I think about primarily two things, which is scalability and usability. And I think those are, uh, if not the top two, you know, two of your primary focuses. Um, and when, you know, scalability, of course, like is a, you know, hot word in, in crypto and all of these different blockchains are trying to figure it out. Um, you know, Ethereum notoriously has had high fees for varying periods of time during bull markets and the like. Everyone's trading NFTs, the gas fees go way through the roof, everything like that. Recently, of course, had ETH2 come along. And so there's very, and then you have like another, you know, Solana comes along and, and they've got a way to do more transactions faster and cheaper as well. All these varying solutions taking different approaches. When I think about near, it seems like you guys have really prioritized not just like the next step of scaling, you know, for, you know, being able to satisfy the demand in three years or five years or even 10 years, but you guys are really focused on like an infinitely scalable solution through this sharding mechanism that you guys have implemented, I think partially and are continuing to implement over time. Um, so when I think about like sort of that strategy and that approach, it seems like one that would pay in the long run, right? Because for the next, you know, three to five years, whatever it might be, all of the existing layer ones that are focusing on scaling for tomorrow and scaling for the next day and scaling for the next year and the next three and the next five, they're going to probably continue to do fine. And there may or may not come a time where they sort of can't keep up anymore. And, and the way that they've built it sort of won't scale any further and they need to sort of, I don't know what they would do, but, um, you know, I, you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like near is a very long-term oriented project. And, uh, because of that, it, it might be expected to sort of take a long time to succeed or at least to succeed, you know, no longer being like a top 30 project, but being, you know, top five or, or whatever it might be top few, one of the most popular and uh, used blockchains in the world. Do you sort of agree with that assessment? And if so, or, or whether, whether you do or not, like, what do you think of sort of this long-term view and what are some of the challenges of, of building for like the infinite future as opposed to a couple of years from now? So, I think there are two sides here. I think one side is, you know, we are very long-term focused and we've always been trying to like, you know, trying to address the problems before they appear, right? And, and in a fundamental way. And I think that it, that does differentiate us, uh, but also obviously comes at expense of it, it's either taking slower or people not always recognizing the value of that, right? I think like Rainbow Bridge is a really good example of like building a the only trustless bridge to Ethereum at the time, right? Uh, versus everybody just launched, you know, a multi-sig. And kind of that, you know, paid off in, in a way, but at the same time, it's uh, it's still, you know, it's, it's almost like you need to market that if you've done it versus uh, just having it working and people understanding the value of that and kind of value of like long-term correct solutions. But I think to your main question of, you know, is the scalability kind of only needed in long-term? I actually don't agree with that. And we actually have seen already that it doesn't work. We have seen it with Polygon. We have seen it with Avalanche and we kind of seen it with Solana even that uh, when there is one really successful application, right? Like Carvara and Avalanche, you know, uh, there's like a few examples on Polygon, uh, NFTs on Solana, the network 
really is not able to keep up. Like the kind of a single network that is trying to process everything is just not able to keep up for various reasons. And like there's ways to kind of patch it, but at the end, kind of the only way is to, you know, quote unquote, shard the network. And so what we see Avalanche doing now is really just implementing sharding in the way they can with kind of what they have. And that's what I meant by like everybody's trying to patch kind of on top of what they already have uh, versus kind of stepping back and fundamentally solving the problems. And so like similar Polygon, right? Polygon has now their, their whatever their alternative for subnets and they're also trying to spin up rollups. And so like everybody is, you know, even the layer twos are trying to spin up layer threes because they also understand they will not be able to scale. Like one app will just bring any layer two down now uh, that has like, you know, proper, like enough users who are actually using it. So like the, the reality is like a, a single app uh, and, you know, we can talk about Sweatcoin as, as an example of that, that has 100 million users who actually want to use this stuff, will just bring any of this network uh, to sneeze. And, and there is ways to address it, to be clear, like Solana has implemented, you know, per account uh, auctions, for example, to address some of these issues and, you know, done a lot of optimization on networking side uh, to kind of prevent DDoS. But at the same time, this is all, you know, this is all, all pat patchwork uh, for the fundamental issue that you need to parallelize across machines, you need to parallelize across kind of uh, state and, and, and processing to be able to scale to something that is like global level, web level. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a lesson that everybody should have learned from Google, Facebook, and every other large company that exists. And so I think like that's, that's a problem of, you know, already today. And uh, we just, you know, actually have, have been building for that from the day one. Right. So you mentioned Swagcoin is one of these apps that, you know, potentially could break um, a system just by being too much user demand all at once. Uh, I know you guys had a very successful uh, partnership launch with them and, and would like to talk about that a little bit more. But before we get there, um, could we just double down a little bit on like, you know, you say that sharding is is sort of the, um, you know, the only and par parallelization is, is sort of the only approach to scaling that will really work. Um, I imagine there's people in the space who would might, might disagree with you what's your like most sort of fundamental explanation of of why this is the the only approach that will really work and and what are some of the other existing approaches that um you know and what are the reasons that that those won't work ultimately well i, I think there's honestly only two approaches one is called uh you know sharding and and people then call it in various ways depending what which exact type of solution they are partial to and then there is you know scaling up the the compute of a single kind of of a single validator right which is what you know solana took on and, and a few others are taking on and they're kind of the idea that you know w w the growth of the compute the growth of the you know ssds becoming more performant etc networks becoming wider will out will outpace or at least match the pace of the of the adoption of the blockchain uh, that's kind of you know in many ways the assumption there 
at the same time, to be clear, they're still paralyzing. Like Solana and, and you know, now the uh, move-based uh, blockchains actually are also sharding. They're just doing sharding inside the uh, inside the one machine, inside the one node. And so because of that, your programming environment is actually still different from what people used to in Ethereum, for example, or, or like any other EVM-based approaches. Uh, because you need to kind of outline which pieces of data you'll be touching so that it can actually paralyze them, uh, paralyze their processing. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's limited by how much compute can one machine or at least like one set of machines uh, process as well as how much network can it receive and how much, you know, how fast the drives are to save it. And honestly, the main bottleneck is actually even not the computer or networking for the most part. It's actually hard drives because uh, because we're trying, like as a blockchain kind of conceptually, we want to have authenticated data that we want to, you know, prove to everyone that the data is correct. And the only way to do it is to actually like store it in this Merkle trees and kind of there's like few few variations of, of them. And that is uh, way more expensive than, you know, normal databases would be. And so the limitations of kind of the blockchains right now are not in processing transactions, but actually in sa- reading and saving state changes of the of the blockchain space as well. And so Solana actually like partially why it's uh, kind of so much faster compared to other approaches is that they don't do it at a time. They only compute the Merkleization once in a, once uh, some period of time, which kind of limits a lot of the proving points of the blockchain when data is fetched. Now, if we go back to sharding, what conceptual sharding is, is the idea that you want to be able to process more than what one, you know, let's say computer can do, right? Imagine when the internet was just starting, you have a lot of users going to some website and that website was hosted on one server and there was more people trying to access it and trying to interact with it than that server can do. And so the idea was like, well, let's put more servers behind that can kind of in parallel provide access to these users. And so then you need to save the user data somewhere. Well, you cannot all put it on one server as well, then that server will uh, be overwhelmed. So you paralyze kind of, you split the users between different computers. So some users are one computer, some users data on another computer. And so you kind of grow on every single dimension. Like you're, you're trying to paralyze the processing and storage of this data. And so in blockchain kind of in very similar terms, uh, sharding is this idea that you are not going to able to process all transactions on one, you know, gigantic blockchain. You will need a lot of kind of parallel execution and, and, and places to store the state um, to be able to handle, you know, let's say when we get billions of users to actually interact with the blockchains. Now, kind of the way people approach it is based on whatever they started with, right? Ethereum has a roll-up approach uh, because they already have a layer one that able to provide security. And so they're just trying to rely on that and build the parallelization kind of on top at at the layer two. Uh, Similarly, you know, Cosmos, for example, is going from a different direction saying like, well, 
but just developers who want to launch their own application, run it completely in parallel to everything else, right? Nothing blocked, like nothing interacting. And then we just build the bridges between these applications as they can communicate and exchange value between each other. So that's like, you know, kind of a spectrum where you have, you know, one highly kind of one central place, like Ethereum one, where everything is to settle on uh, to communicate, or you have, you know, Cosmos approach where everything is running in parallel and then there's intercommunication built in. And so what near is, is, you know, taking all of these ideas and thinking from a different dimension, which is, well, what if we don't want users and developers to think about scalability, right? They should just use the blockchain as if it was a single entity. And so what that means is that there should be a single namespace for all the applications and user accounts. There should be kind of single, you know, way to pay for fees. There should be single pay way to kind of understand uh, what's going on with the blockchain. At the end, at the same time, we want to make sure that at any point, any application can have as much capacity as it needs, um, you know, up until the whole block, like a whole chain, you know, like up to what Cosmos can offer for its developers. And, and on the other side, if, you know, you have a lot of small applications that can live together, like it can, they can live in one place and don't need to pay uh, to run their own kind of chain. And so what near is underneath is actually every single contract or account, like even my account is a virtual chain or a virtual rollup. And then they get bundled together uh, to kind of to optimize how much machines needed to power, for the parallel processing uh, based on the demand. And so for example, Aurora, which is, you know, a kind of popular application on Near, which is actually, it's, all, it's a simulation of Ethereum chain on Near as a smart contract, has its own, runs on its own chain because they need that capacity for processing all, the, all their own transactions. And at the same time, they interconnect with everything else because they live in the same kind of namespace and all of the communication happens in exactly the same way as other applications. And so kind of the idea, like at the core is we, you know, we're trying to solve the same problem as everybody else, but we started from a very different place, which is like, how do we make it simple and straightforward for people who will be using this versus kind of how are we going to retrofit or how are we going to kind of give all the power to developers, which, uh, I mean, is a different approach, but at the same time is very complex and expensive to do. Yeah, there's always a, uh, a benefit to uh, sort of starting from a blank slate. And, uh, you know, granted, there were other projects that started, you know, when you guys did or, or even after, but um, some, like you mentioned, Ethereum, obviously a few years under its belt already and sort of have to work with what they've already done and what's with what's been successful to date and, and try to, you know, make things work and, and scale based on that existing structure. Um, so if we take that a little bit of a step further and, and sort of, uh, you know, the, someone gives the benefit of the doubt that, okay, we're, you know, this is the best technology that there is, um, what you guys are building with near, um, you know, the, the way things work in, in actuality is that, you know, the best technology doesn't necessarily always win. Um, it's not just about the best technology. It's also about, you know, distribution and um, being able to get, you know, obviously crypto being a very international phenomenon, you have to get people 
around the world involved in this ecosystem, developers, users, um, contributors, all sorts of people, evangelists. Um, what have been sort of your early strategies for sort of building up this ecosystem? Obviously, it's been quite successful. Um, you know, you guys didn't just like build this thing and then no one really knows about it. It's it's a very popular um, protocol that that a lot of people, a lot of developers are building on it and people are using. Um, you know, it's again, it's not in like that that top five just yet, but it's sort of right below there um, and in a very short period of time. So obviously some of these strategies have been successful. Maybe you've learned that um, some haven't been and there's alternatives that you want to pursue in the future. I'm curious just to hear your approach on that um, and, and how you've gone about it to date and, and how that might change in the future. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the kind of core inspirations, right, and kind of mentioned Google, uh, my work at Google has been how do we build something that Google ended up building internally, but address their problems. The benefits of kind of internally in Google is that it's a very open ecosystem where you can, you know, all of the code is in one place, all of the services are reusable and composable. You're able to contribute, you're able to kind of um, build on top of other services. It's pretty easy to start like internally even new projects and be able to kind of prove, prove out some of the con like proof of concepts uh, based on all the existing infrastructure. Right? And obviously there's a lot of the human component, like just a massive amount of talent that exists at Google that you can really tap in and learn from. And so kind of it, they build internally a very powerful ecosystem that uh, then gets uh, limited by a few things. And so the specific limitations that I felt were one, that it is a permission system, right? You need to kind of be interviewed and join Google to be able to access all that. And second, which you know applies very uh, like the, the other way around, which is like you have trouble going outside of the circle of Google, like including for product feedback and kind of talking to users and and you know getting contributors. And it's, and the second one is the lack of internal kind of understanding of impact, right? Because uh, you know Google is like. 90% or I don't know the right numbers, but like some big percentage is ads, right? And like a few other products after that. And so if you're working on one of the pieces of the ecosystem, right? Which in my case, I worked on TensorFlow, for example, with a lot of other people, it was unclear how TensorFlow contributes to the bottom line of the whole company. And so you didn't have this idea of like, hey, this is the impact of this project, which is, you know, one of the probably both seminal projects in machine learning have made on the whole kind of Google company or Alphabet company. And so in result, what you're doing is you're creating like kind of artificial metrics. Like I remember using, you know, how many other teams are using my APIs type thing, which is really kind of, you know, an indirect way of measuring things. And so... So with this concepts in mind, the idea was like, how do we build a near ecosystem in such a way that, you know, you can say that it's an open Google. It's something that there's a lot of, you know, very smart, talented people want to join. It's open, so nobody needs to get a permission to join it. 
uh, they're able to kind of build on top of it, contribute to it, uh, participate in discussions and, you know, build their reputation. And at the same time, they're able to capture the value from the, you know, what they provide to the ecosystem. And if they do something that's like, they catch, with the right risk reward ratio, they get, you know, the reward. Like if they try to start some new innovative project, they should be able to capture uh, the value of it that is, you know, proportional to the risk they've been taking to do it. And so this is where I think, you know, blockchain and crypto is actually tools to achieve this new organizational design. And so what we've been trying to do, and obviously like there's still a lot of work, but is to figure out how to build this ecosystem in such a way that, you know, it's in a way autonomous, it runs itself and it follows its patterns. So where near protocol and near kind of ecosystem is, you know, the basis, the values, the goals of the ecosystem, but then people are building infrastructure, building applications, you know, have go-to-market investment, et cetera, uh, and kind of different aspects of the, of the whole, you know, ecosystem, they all tie together and they at the same time have their own incentives. So specific things we've done were, uh, one, we spin out a number of teams from our core kind of original team, as well as at the end, we kind of wrapped, wrapped that into a different company as well, uh, kind of pretty much removing, having kind of a single core team at this point, which people keep asking me like, so what is core team working on? I'm like, well, they are in, I don't know, a dozen different companies at this point, uh, you know, being founders and being the uh, kind of founding members to to run different parts of the ecosystem. So this was, you know, go to market teams like Human Guild and Proximity focused on gaming and DeFi respectively. It was infrastructure teams like Aurora and Calimero building the you know EVM compatibility as well as a lot of user facing tooling and Calimero's building private shard for enterprises. It's uh, you know kind of Pagoda, which uh, some of the core team and a lot of the uh, newly joined engineers are working on developer tooling and Web3 infrastructure kind of infrastructure. And so the idea is that you have this kind of lots of different pockets and, and verticals then to cover go to market to help people to be successful because at the end you know it's as more and more startups join the ecosystem the ecosystem itself becomes like a big accelerator right it's like companies join and they're trying to figure out what exactly are they uh you know how exactly is it going to market how is it tapping into users you know how is it launching their tokens etc and then the other strategy we've been using and that's in many ways because kind of understanding that to be global right you mentioned right you know the blockchains are truly global uh, ecosystems you you need to be present locally in many different places and so we've started with china originally and then ukraine and balkans and recently uh, launched uh, india and vietnam is this idea of regional hubs. It's pretty much a mini version of uh, you know, near foundation where they are running kind of their own grants program. They have a product lab, they doing contributions, you know, some of them doing contributions to protocol, some of them doing business development locally. They are, you know, maybe have a fund that they can invest in 
uh, they're doing community and marketing in that region. So it's almost like sharding our own, you know, go to market, both regionally and vertically. And then like through that building this ecosystem level accelerator muscle that allows startups to be successful kind of whenever they come in into this ecosystem. So that's been kind of core strategy. Obviously, there's a lot of learnings here. Uh, some things didn't work. Some things we, you know, continuously as a whole ecosystem improving. And yeah, I'm inviting everyone to join kind of the uh, kind of near community to learn more, like for things that work and whatnot. And then kind of a one new bigger thread is now that we have so much decentralization in the ecosystem, is how to make decisions, right? Because now it's not, you know, a company where at the end you have hierarchy. It's like number of independent organizations which are, you know, tied together with common values, but have their own set of incentives and, you know, their own tokens, how to make decisions in this. And so that's where we recently launched a near digital collective initiative, which is designed to build a ecosystem level governance. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest learnings and something that I've been Kind of trying to work on since 2018. Um, it's like how do we make decisions in a decentralized way while still being able to kind of move quickly and make make decisions that sometimes you know will leave some people uncomfortable, right? Because like that's that's at the end, if decisions are always everybody's happy with, then then uh, that's just not going to work. And so. So NDC is currently right now in, in progress. There's like a lot of different people contributing to this effort to build this kind of decision-making muscle for the ecosystem and allow all of these parties to participate and contribute their input. Yeah, I think that's, uh, well, it's, first of all, a super interesting answer. I really like the analogy of like sharding the foundation itself um, through these different geographies and then also decentralizing the core team to working on these different projects, no longer a part of the same organization, but working, you know, within the same ecosystem, having their own go to markets and everything like that. Um, I know you've been a fan, or at least I read that you've uh, been a big believer in like the ability of small teams to, you know, work in, in parallel for, for a long time. I think you built something, you know, even very early in your career that had like a bunch of small teams working on a bunch of different things towards like a similar mission. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, uh, I think Bezos uh, at Amazon had a rule of like no team bigger yeah, than pizza, a pizza. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, also it, it actually even more so reminds me of, uh, I think like uh, at Apple, Steve Jobs would have different teams working on the same project without knowing it. And of course, <laughs> you know, near it's it's more like transparent and stuff. But um, nonetheless, you've got different people from the core team breaking off and, and working on some things that are probably at least tangential, um, if not competitive in a way, but all within the ecosystem. And so it's sort of, if you grow the pie large enough, um, even if you don't, you know, come in first place as like the best app on near, um, you know, you build the system large enough that you have overwhelming success uh, along all these other apps and, and whatnot. Um, but I think what's interesting and the challenge that you brought up is like, you know, it's it's easier like Bezos with that strategy, he could always come down and, and make the decision and, and jobs could always say, okay, well, this team is now clearly outperforming this team. So we're going to shut this team down and have them work on something else. And th this is how we're going to go forward. There's that like executive control. 
And um, you guys decided, obviously, like this was the right time to decentralize the organization a bit and, and spin these different teams out. But it brought this challenge of governance that you've mentioned. And so I'm curious, um, with the Near Digital Collective, you know, what are some of like, how, how do you even begin to approach this question? Because it's an extremely difficult question. It's basically, how do you govern? Um, how do you make decisions? Those are like the highest level decision, the, the highest level questions basically possible. This is what countries deal with. Uh, let alone companies. So I'm curious, you know, what principles you sort of come into that, you know, keeping in mind and um, any thoughts you've had thus far, what, what might work, what doesn't seem to work, how you can sort of keep that speed of execution and um, have some sort of effective executive decision-making with, while maintaining sort of a decentralized team. Yeah, no, you're right. This is probably the, the most complex question that humanity has is like, how do we coordinate our work when everybody has their own kind of, like even if they live in the same country, but they still have their own self-interests. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's akin to building a government. The benefit is that, well, A, we can start from scratch, uh, similar to how we did with blockchain. And B, we have a tool now to, to help with people coordination. Which I don't like. I, I I look at governments and I see the result of kind of the communication and the geography and geopolitics as an out like being the kind of inputs that shape the government, right? You know, the U.S. government, the kind of the federal government structure is very much because the states were so far away; they would send people to go to the DC because it took like two, three weeks to get there. And so they would send them there to kind of represent the state and then, you know, have a lot, a lot of autonomy to run things on the ground um, because the, the United States were formed at the time when that was kind of the fastest way to communicate, you know, the more modern, like more, you know, governments that kind of been formed more recently have different shape of things. And so the, uh, and if we have a really kind of novel opportunity here to, to form this, and uh, I think it's really important to leverage this. <laughs> and at the same time, it's like, well, what, what, what are the things that we want to optimize for, right? So I think the ability to make decisions, informed decisions at the kind of most, at the tightest group possible is probably one of the biggest design goals. So think of it as like if somebody wants to update how, you know, like state transition is getting stored into the database on across the protocol, they should not need a kind of, you know, a, a full referendum of all the people in the community to participate in that, right? There should be like a protocol experts who are able to kind of evaluate and make an informed decisions from that. At the same time, if somebody similarly, you know, suggests some technical change, but it impacts the whole ecosystem, for example, changing the inflation uh, schedule, kind of the reward schedule, that needs to be kind of surfaced and augmented with expert opinions and with kind of information that different people are able to consume to be able to reason about it, a different set of stakeholders. And so 
kind of the other side of the goal is like how do we represent all of the stakeholders given we don't have you know like one person one vote but also like we don't actually have one person right we have companies we have projects we have DAOs that also represent we have validators so like there's no like monotonicity of of stakeholders as well which is usually true about the uh in a design goal of the governments where, you know, of democratic governments with one person, one vote. So the ideas we've been exploring is this idea of uh, that kind of a multi-house Congress, which uh, takes on different responsibilities. So there's a house of stake, which is people voting with their stake. And kind of the more they are the delegate or the longer the stake, that gives them more vote. But at the same time, if you have like kind of reducing purpose, like to not make it that, you know, if you have million tokens versus 10 tokens, you you have, you know, uh, 100,000 times more, but maybe like only 10,000 10, or 1,000 times more power. So like be, being able to, you know, quadratic voting type thing around that. At the same time, and this, and this is like, you know, mo- maybe a kind of more broader, you know, referendum style decisions where it's like, hey, do we want this to happen or if other branches of this NDC are not operating as the ecosystem as a whole is expected. The second part is uh, called House of Merit. This idea that we want to surface people who actually are full-time in the ecosystem, who are you know, continuously contributing to the ecosystem. So they are uh, kind of you know, contributing to public goods of the ecosystem. And so through that, they, they should represent the kind of ecosystem decision-making. There usually will be some types of experts, right, in different fields as well, uh, uh, like as they are contributing to this. And so that is more of a, you know, think of kind of place where more tactical, but but I'll say, like, I mean, decisions like, hey, should we create a new vertical for investment because there's clearly need, you know, there's like a new dimension that a new use case and we don't have a team that's responsible for that. And then there's a lot of work groups, which are kind of this more, you know, scoped down versions of this, potentially with the same people kind of being members who are making decisions on the specific things. Like for example, there's a protocol work group, right? That makes decisions around how protocol is evolving. There's a contract standards work group. There's there's a governance work group itself, right? That continuously trying to innovate on this and propose, like, and, and currently working on the design itself. So, kind of, there's the scoped versions that are designed to be, like, handling the, you know, day to day of the of the innovation. And then there's a house of merit, which is kind of, you know, think of it as like decides on kind of larger initiatives and uh can be like it is consists of experts and and people who are contributing continuously to the ecosystem and then there's a broader representation of the whole ecosystem through has a stake yeah it's, it's very interesting and I, i'm not uh envious of being in your position to try to figure all of this stuff out but uh <laughs> i'm very very interested to see how everything plays out and uh you know what what the design ends up being and what it optimizes for and what you try to optimize for versus what actually happens and all of this, it's going to be a very interesting few years and decade ahead, not just for near, but uh, 
for Web3 more broadly and 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 a bunch of different aspects as well. Um, and I think that's a, a good place to uh, to sort of wrap things up with with one final question. You've you've sort of you know your early career um, was focused on ML and AI and spent a long time there. Near, in fact, was originally, as you mentioned, sort of built to be more of an AI company. Um, and now, obviously, you've spent the last uh, several years working in, in blockchain and, and Web3 and everything like this. Um, and of course, these are like two, you know, trend lines that seem to just be going up basically exponentially. And especially like AI's got a lot of hype around it lately with stable diffusion and open AI, GPT-3 and everything like this. Um, whereas crypto has fallen into a bit of a lull in terms of prices, at least, but the builder enthusiasm seems to be you know, at or, or near all time highs. Um, so both of these things, obviously like you can be really deep in one or really deep in the other and, and think you understand how the next three, five, 10 years might play out. Um, but it's really hard because like they, they impact each other. Um, all of these different trend lines in the world, they're, they're not like mutually exclusive. And so you have a pretty good understanding. I imagine of, um, obviously blockchain being what you're, you know, primarily focused on these days and web three but also AI from, you know, all the time you spent there. So I'm curious if you could speak to, um, you know, how, how you see uh, these two things sort of converging and impacting each other uh, in the years to come and, and where we are now and, and where we might be headed in, in a few different aspects. For sure, yeah. I mean, I think the AI trend is definitely, it has a very step function like, feeling and so every time there's a step function people get really excited and then and then it dies down uh while you know <laughs> the people working <laughs> the people actually working on the next step um happening right so kind of this step function happened over past year with gpd3 with stable diffusion with you know fiat dali etc kind of truly showcasing that it can capture not just you know not just memorize something that actually captures the principles of language or images and then kind of create new novel things as well as, you know, start to do some basic reasoning. And so that is the next step is, you know, really expanding on how the reasoning works. But I think at the same time where, where the limitations are right now is that there's very small number of kind of researchers and people in general who have access to um, to build to like innovate on these things because of very expensive compute requirements, and so this is where Stability AI has done an amazing job of like kind of building that compute and then open sourcing the model that everybody else can then play around and build on top. And so I think where kind of blockchain and and governance and incentives come in is really and will be. Kind of coming together with AI in coming gear, I think, is in this intersection of like, how do we make it open source, community owned, community operated in such a way that both more people have access to it. And at the same time, you know, we are need to be like mindful of like how it's used as well and like what applications are really just targeted to. But at the same time, we cannot kind of, as a world, we cannot afford this capabilities to be limited to a few, you know, companies, for-profit companies especially. And so I think that's where 
I guess that's why I think governance is actually a really important component, not just for near ecosystem kind of, you know, to make decisions about near, but actually to make decisions about things like, you know, other public goods that AI will become as it becomes more and more open and, and kind of accessible. At the same time, you know, creating incentives around it, creating incentives to to generate, you know, generate enough capital or, or enough compute resources to then train really complex large models uh, and give access to various researchers is something that blockchain. I think Juan Bennett says it really well. It's like the tokens are ability to borrow from the future uh, really give us. And so I think these two spaces are going to be coming together closer and closer. And as, as I said, like we started with the crowdsourcing because that's probably the simplest of this like coordination problems uh, that you know blockchain actually can uh, lend a hand on. But I think there are more and more of these uh, places where these things intersect. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's definitely going to be a wild few years, and uh, I can't begin to imagine what's coming. But it it seems like there's a lot of exciting stuff going on, and I'm very fortunate to speak with uh, people like you who are who are out there building it uh, on the podcast. So I appreciate you you coming on today and, and taking the time, and uh, you know through this conversation, but even more so, uh, you know beforehand preparing for it. Uh, I'm very excited about near and and what the future holds for near specifically and the whole ecosystem. So. Uh, looking forward to you know following along for uh, months and years to come. Where's the best place for people to go who want to get involved, whether they're builders or just curious, you know, people who who might be potential users of various apps and holders of near and and things like that. Uh, where's the best place for them to go and and get involved? Um, well, so near.org is definitely a great starting place. Uh, you can learn more about near. You can learn like you know, there's developers, developer docs. There's uh, kind of how to join this like ecosystem accelerator, right? How to apply and, and kind of connect to different places in the ecosystem. And there's, you know, applications for people to use, you know, kind of and become a user. Um, you know, you can obviously follow on Twitter near protocol uh, and, you know, check out my Twitter, IL Black Dragon. Uh, so kind of, you know, news on what's going on in the ecosystem. And then, yeah, just uh, kind of through that, uh, join near.chat, which is uh, Discord for kind of more broader community discussions in the ecosystem, folks. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again, Eli. I really appreciate the time and uh, very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.